Okay, guys, I'm incredibly excited to have today with me Professor Amy Chua, who is a law school professor at a somewhat unknown university, Yale University. Uh, I really wanted to speak to her because I've been an admirer of her books for a while, but more the, the main reason I want to speak to her is because she exemplifies what I call the true honey badger spirit. Amy, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to see that. I didn't know what that referred to, and I, I Googled it, and I loved it. I loved the description. Thank <laughs> well, you for having me. Oh, pleasure. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in the last chapter of my latest book, I, I implore people to activate their inner honey badger, meaning to, to be courageous and, and you know, in, in speaking out and fighting within the battle of ideas. And the reason why I use the honey badger badger is because it is the a, an animal the size of a small dog but that is so fierce and ferocious that it could withstand an attack of six adult lions and they run away in hiding and so amy you are this week's honey badger i hope i can live up to this <laughs> <laughs> all right so I, what i wanted to do first is uh, promote your i think you're at five books correct and you are the first uh, lovely guest to actually send me all of her books, not just sending them to me, personally autographing each. So let's go through them. I think I put them in chronological order. Let me okay. put my glasses because I'm getting old. World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic Hatred and Global in Instability. Uh, that's 2003, I believe. Yeah. You know what's funny now? It, it doesn't even seem controversial because, you know, with with... I don't know. Now it's, you know, everybody knows all the sort of problems with democracy after Iraq and Afghanistan and even what's happening, you know, in the United States. But when I wrote that, it was so um, against conventional wisdom because I wrote that right when um, the brilliant Frank Fukuyama wrote The End of History. And that book is constantly misunderstood, too. But it was right after the Soviet Union fell and everybody was just, you know, Markets and democracy are the answer to everything. So yeah, that was my first book. Now what, so of course, as a, each discipline is different in that in some fields, you have to just publish in peer-reviewed journals, certainly empirical disciplines, and they don't care whether you publish in books or, or if you ever publish any books. In other fields in the humanities, it's all about book publishing and nobody cares about peer-reviewed. In your field of law, how is that, what's the balance there? It's totally different. Um, so my first three works that got me tenure were law journal, uh, very standard, you know, that world on fire now is popular, but it's based on an article that was full of, you know, a model with five conditions. Um, and we don't use peer review journals in the law. It's actually interesting. It's a student run journal, um, which is, I think is very unusual. So, and they're actually surprisingly powerful. The Harvard Law Review, the Yale Law Journal, Stanford Law Review, these can make or break uh, tenure careers. And so I published first in a publication, got tenure, and then went rogue. <laughs> so had, did you have the idea that you wanted to write books, but were you were holding off until you got tenure? Or is, is book authoring something that you fell into just accidentally after having gotten tenure? When I was little, I thought I wanted to write novels. Uh, and I always had this idea, I'm going to be an author. Um, my first uh, attempt at that was a huge disaster, uh, uh, you know, principally because of the utter lack of a plot. Um, so then I, I actually had a really weird and checkered writing career. I, I, I started off when I went to public school thinking I was a great writer. 
Then I went to college and was competing with all these Ivy Leaguers who had gone to private schools. And, and I, I, I contracted like a 10-year period of writer's block. <laughs> 10 um, years. Well, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> yeah, I suddenly had complete crisis. Um, so when I wrote these law review articles, I actually thought that's all I was going to do. And it was a friend of mine, Akhil Lamar, um, that said, you know, this article is very timely right now um, because when I when I wrote the article, it was before September 11th. And, you know, everybody was, let's, you know, send elections and ballot boxes to all over the former Soviet Union and, you know, the Middle East, this is going to be great. But then 9-11 happened and suddenly everybody was interested in globalization and ethnic conflict. Um, and it was very timely. So that's, so I didn't plan it. I mean, then I, I uh, and it was actually really hard. I, I wonder if you've had a similar thing, the transition from academic writing to a popular book I mean, it was it was difficult that my editor kept saying, stop using jargon. And I'm like, I'm not using jargon. He's like, you are using jargon. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what my secret was. Uh, I knew I mean, I always knew that I wanted to reach a broader audience. And although I love, you know, publishing in peer reviewed journals, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. Expand knowledge. I also am someone who's. Uh, you know, driven by a desire to connect with people. And when you write peer-reviewed journals, if, if, you're, if your article is cited a hundred times in 10 years, you're, exci you're excited. And I thought that, that the velocity of the spread of information was, so I knew I wanted to write for a, a, you know, a larger audience. So what I did, Amy, is when, when the opportunity came to me in 2008 to start writing for Psychology Today. Now, yeah. Psychology Today is a, is a platform where People who are excited about psychology want to hear from experts, yeah. but not but not using all the jargon and the technical exactly. stuff. And so I thought, okay, if I accept this invitation and if I can write in that platform and I receive the feedback that you know people are reading it, enjoying it, that will be my litmus test that I think I've got the ability to write to a, to a large audience. So that's how I did it. That's perfect. I mean, I had to fight and. Um, uh, it, the transition was difficult because I remember, you know, as an academic, um, that I there were certain things I wouldn't give up. So in that book, World on Fire, I coined the term market dominant minority. Oh, yes. And given your background, you should be doubly interested. <laughs> um, so this concept is a, um, you know, everybody in, the, in, in Asia knows about it. But, you know, in the United States and Europe, people really had not thought about it. Because in countries like the United States, the minorities that we focus on are doubly oppressed. Yeah. You know, like African Americans, Native Americans, they're politically, economically, everything oppressed. So I focused on this phenomenon very common in Southeast Asia of a very small ethnic minority that is um, economically dominant, mm -hmm. very, very, uh, very, you know, disproportionately wealthy and, 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 and dominant economically, but because of their tiny numbers, politically vulnerable. And I call them market-dominant minorities. And examples are the Chinese and countries like Indonesia or the Philippines, where I'm from. But also, and I went for this taboo topic, um, you know, um, Jews, not always in history, but during certain periods, for example, in between the First and the Second World War in many Eastern Euro European countries, uh, or the Lebanese, but actually including the Lebanese Christians. and. And this is not just vague, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm actually talking about disproportionate control of major sectors of the economy. So you can imagine how much trouble I got into because everyone's like, are you, you know, preying on stereotypes? Are you, and I said, I'm just, no, I'm just, I'm just describing facts. 
and saying that when you have these conditions of this strange phenomenon of a minority that is viewed as an outsider but so dominant, if you democratize and get the majority in there, you might get consequences that are not as you know romantically perfect as Westerners often assume. So that was my first controversial thing. We're going to get through all the books, but just to, to piggyback on what you just said, uh, because you alluded to, to my background, so for my viewers, most of them know that I'm Lebanese Jewish. Uh, I've never heard of that before. you never heard? Okay, well, there you go. Uh, so I often will ask people to guess how many Jews there are in the world. And I, I most famously, I, I challenged uh, Joe Rogan on one of the times that I've been on his show, uh, maybe two shows ago. I can't remember exactly when. And it, I actually discussed this in, in, in The Parasitic Mind. And his first guess was one billion Jews. I said, okay, is that your final answer? And he said, no, no, no. Well, you know what? Let me revise it. I think it's half a billion. I'm going with 500 million Jews. I said, okay, is that your final answer? Yes. So then I said, uh, it's 14 million Jews. So then he, he, he was completely incredulous. He said, oh, baloney, BS. Uh, and then he asks his producer, his name is Jamie. Jamie, could you pull up? I'm sure God is bullshitting. And then he looks up and, and it's 14 million. And so I think one of the, and I'd love to, to take, get your take on that, using the term that you coined in your 2003 book, I think because Jews are so often in positions of excellence, whether it be in, you know, in banking and Hollywood and Nobel arts. prizes and arts, then people overestimate how many there are because how else could they wield so much influence? And then when people find out that there are so few, in a sense that fuels, there must be some diabolical yes. machinations that would cause so few people to control so much. They must have horns hidden behind their hairlines. Completely, completely. And, and it's, I, I would have guessed the number much closer that although I, you know, Joseph may, I don't know him, but he's, um, but I know the statistics because uh, for example, the Chinese in Indonesia are just 3% of the population. Um, the Chinese in the Philippines are 1% of the population, but control as much as 60% of the private economy. So so I would have been in that kind of 1%, 3% right. zone. Um, right. But Jews are even smaller, I mean, worldwide. It's, it's, it's pretty astonishing. There you go. All right, book two. Uh, let me put back my glasses. Day of Empire, How Hyperpowers Rise to Global Dominance and Why They Fall. Boom. You have to get all these books, people. This is good stuff. I haven't read them yet, but I am going to read them cover to cover. Uh, do you want to say anything so, about this one? Yeah, that was so fun. That's my most obscure um, book. It's the only book I didn't get in trouble for. And I think it's <laughs> one of the best ones. You know, um, So, you know, I people forget, but this is... Because um, things change so quickly. But after... Um, you know, like in the early 2000s, there was after the Soviet Union fell and before China rose, there was this period where the United States was just viewed as a hegemon, a global hegemon. You know, I mean, now with China, it, it doesn't feel so much that way anymore. But for a period, it was like the United States, everyone was saying English and McDonald's and the dollar's going to take over everything. So I use this term hyperpower that actually the French foreign minister coined um, to describe the phenomenon, not just a superpower, you know, because usually the, the normal situation is to have a world where you have like a couple of powers competing, you know, a multipolar world. That's more normal. And I was really interested in how many times in history do you have a situation where 
almost everybody would agree that there's just one hyperpower that's culturally, economically, militarily, pol you know, politically dominant. And I found that there were very few in all of human history. You know, like, and I, by my count, and we can disagree about the cases, but I had like eight um, that includes some obvious ones, like the you know ancient Persian history and the Roman Empire, of course, the British. But less, I mean, more surprisingly, the Dutch Republic in a very small period in the 16th and 17th century. Um, anyway, the thesis of the book is I wanted to see what all of these um, hyperpowers had in common, and I found, and I, you know, I didn't go in the research. I thought I was going to find all different explanations. But I found an amazing pattern, which that is that you know, for all their differences, you know, even ancient empires to the United States, every single hyperpower was strikingly tolerant and kind of pluralistic and open on their way to global dominance. And then in every case, the decline of this empire coincided with xenophobia and intolerance. So, um, uh, so I'm guessing the U.S. is in decline, given what we're seeing right now. It's a lot of people have been asking me to give talks on this now because it seems more relevant than ever. Um, you know, when it's interesting, the mechanism, when you start with antiquity, like the Romans, it was. And by the way, I'm using tolerant in a very not enlightenment way. I just meant letting people of all different religions and skin colors and backgrounds participate in your economy. You don't even have to like them or respect them. And in antiquity, this is the only way to build the world's largest army. You know, so so if you say my army is only going to be limited to pure-blooded Spartans, it's only there. How many pure-blooded Spartans are there? But if you open up your military to people of every single background, and you know you can draw on the best and the brightest, um, then you can build a world-class army. And with the Dutch, um, we saw a pivot. It was no longer conquest. You know, it wasn't the size of the army. But it did turn, uh, this is what you were alluding to with the United States, to immigration, actually, as the best way to attract, um, you know, the world's best and brightest. Uh, of the eight that you uh, uncovered in your book, was one of them sort of the Andalusian uh, reality? Was that one of them? Uh no, you know, it's, it's, it, a lot of it was serendipity. Um, so you could really, I could get good questions about methodology because sometimes... Remember, it just depends on who's the competition, right. right? So during that time, like if you look at when Spain was very, very powerful, there were a lot of other powerful countries, mm. you know, the, like the, the Ottomans and the French and the Dutch. So, so in some ways, some of these um, hyperpowers were, uh, became hyperpowers because nobody else was powerful. Um, you know, one that I wrote about that was interesting was the great Mongol empire founded by Genghis Khan that only lasted a very, very short time. But Europe at that point was just like in religious, I mean, there was nothing, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, yeah, you know, so it, it's a fun thesis. The, the reason why I asked about Andalusia is because oftentimes people use that as the exemplar of Islamic tolerance. Whereas as someone who's grown up in, in, in the Middle East, tolerance in that context means something very different than what yeah. is typically presumed in, uh, you know, Western uh, you know, mean understanding of tolerance. So I had a guest a few years ago. Uh, I think he's from Northwestern, and he had written a book about sort of the myth of the Andalusian paradise. That uh, you, you still had. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Islamic uh, precepts like the dimmi status, right? Where 
yeah. Christians and Jews could be, quote, tolerated, but they, they are not equal participants, right? I yes. mean, we don't go around beheading them every day, but they yeah. are recognized as second, if not third class citizens. So when people usually refer to the paradise of tolerance of Andalusia, it's quite uh, quite an incorrect uh Link. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I do make that very clear that the kind of tolerance I'm talking about is a is instrumental tolerance, yeah, right. not a kind of enlightenment one. You know, um, I mean, to talk about the Romans that, you know, had so many slaves or the Persians as tolerant in this sense is, um, you know, obviously not what I'm talking about. But that's interesting. Yeah. Is your family at one point from uh, I don't know if we go back that far. I'm almost certain based on sort of the, the, the narrative of our families that we've always been exactly around the area of the Middle East forever, going back to, you know, King David. But in terms of actual, you know, genealogy, I could only go back to my grandparents, three of whom I believe came from Syria, which is not very, you know, is adjacent to Lebanon. And so... My feeling, although I've I've wondered whether I should do the. Have you ever done the ancestry dot com or whatever those? Uh, yes, I have. I'm so boring. I'm like all entirely uh, just Chinese. Oh, okay. So you you didn't get any surprises. No. Okay, no. so I'm. I'm Actually, you know, now I realize I do know. You, I, I had, I made a mistake. I said I didn't know any Lebanese Jews, but if, is that the same thing as Syrian Jews? Uh, it's it's not in that Syrian Jews come from Syria, but it is yeah. it is true that a lot of Syrian Jews went to Lebanon. But, okay. but I mean, they are two distinct countries, although they are adjacent to each other. Both, I think both of which were under the French protectorate at one point. Uh, but I they, do know a lot about the Syrian Jewish community, both in the United States. Yeah. I've written about them, even in a book we'll get to, the Triple Package. Um, and uh, and I know a lot about Lebanese uh, Christians all over yeah, the world, like Carlos Slim. I'll tell you a quick story and here I'm, I'm going uh, I'm, I'm giving away some stuff an anecdote that I'm writing in my next book which I'm currently working on uh, so you viewers consider yourself lucky that you're hearing this for the first time uh, about mid 90s I had just so I finished my PhD in 94 I had just started my assistant professorship here in Montreal and you know everybody is trying to set you up I was single at the time I was in my late 20s and so I was visiting at my parents' house and uh, uh, they had some, a couple their age uh, visiting at the house. And at one point, the, the gentleman of the couple uh, approaches me and says, so, God, you're, you're single still? I said, yes, yes, I am. He goes, and he goes like this, like, come closer. Like, it's a very kind of Middle Eastern thing. I want to yeah. say something in your ear. Come closer. He goes, uh, I've got a lot of Lebanese and Syrian Jewish girls in New Jersey and in New York that I know. I can uh, hook you up. Would you like that? I said, well, sure, whatever. And he goes, but come closer. So I come closer and he goes, but uh, are you all, I mean, these are very, very wealthy people. Are you always going to be doing this professor thing? So I said, that, so, I, I, so I, I now mimic him with my full trenchant sarcasm. I go, uh, you go tell those women and their parents that if they're if that they are ashamed to be with a professor, then maybe I'm not interested in being with them. <laughs> so then after that, they so they were all aghast by my reply. When they leave, what do you think my parents do? Do you think they're on my side, or do you think they chastise me for saying what I said? I don't know. You're kidding. <laughs> no. You're well, kidding. what they said is. 
Why do you have such a sharp tongue? Why must you answer them that way? I said, because he insulted me. He was denigrating me for being a professor. Right. For him, right. I mean, it's a, it's a cute little pastime to be a professor. But I mean, you're not making money. These people are multi, multi-millionaires. When are you going to get serious and not do this academia stuff, right? So that, and the reason why I talk about this story in the book is, uh, in the, my forthcoming book, is because I, I argue that when you're choosing your right, the right partner to share your life with, you're not just marrying them, you're marrying their values, you're marrying the values of their parents. And so I could have met the loveliest girl coming from those Syrian and, and uh, communities, but we likely could have never meshed because she would have probably never understood what I'm all about as an academic, right? Well, I mean, that's why Jews are, are so fascinating, right? Because you occupy, I mean, for example, there's the long tradition in other communities of studying the Talmud where the the scholar and the rabbi is the is the most uh, admired, yeah. very parallel to Chi in Chinese hierarchy, traditional Confucian hierarchy. The scholar is the highest, exactly. well above the merchants, you know. But but and this is a funny parallel between the Chinese and the Jews. You'll go into some communities and for what maybe your book is going to cover it, you know, because I know about the Syrian community uh, in the New York area and they are extremely business oriented exactly. and didn't even want some of their children to go to college. They exactly. said, just be in the family business, you know, so these kind of um, small sub communities yeah. of Jews, it's yeah. fascinating. And you're yeah. absolutely right for values. That would be a, that would be an unpleasant relationship. <laughs> it would have, it would have. Uh, okay. Now, probably you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Your most successful book correct? Uh, yes. Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. I hope that you are not fed up to discuss it because no. hopefully we'll get a chance to discuss it. Take it away. I mean, I know what it's all about, but give us your central thesis. So this, I was an obscure academic. The, you know, in law, there are these, the highest, most prestigious areas of law, constitutional law, you know, you know, criminal law, federal courts. And I was doing this kind of law and development, weird stuff, a nobody. Um, and all of the books I wrote before took me three years, five years of research. I wrote that book, the first two thirds of it, in three months. And so the backstory is I was raised by two very traditional Chinese immigrant parents who were extremely strict. I mean, I couldn't get an A minus. My parents are still alive. I love them, but I couldn't have sleepovers. I had to play the violin. I had to be the number one top student, everything except for physical education and citizenship. <laughs> I didn't care about that. Um, but I married a Jewish man and I, because I'm an overconfident, spontaneous, I don't know, sometimes not very um, thoughtful person, I decided, you know, since it worked well with me, you know, me and my younger, three, my three younger sisters and I, we all complained when we were little, but we all are so grateful to our parents now. I wanted to raise my two daughters the same way that my parents raised me. And with number one, easy, very self-motivated. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with these Western parents. You know, you just have to be a little firm and it's easy. Then three years later, I had number two, Lulu, biggest rebel ever. I mean, you know, kicking, even when I was carrying her, you know, born saying no, uh, I'm not going to college. I want to be a garbage man when I grow up. You know, um, I'm, and I have, you know, I remember in second grade, she told the teachers, I see visions, you know, and the, the teachers wanted to do a neurological study. And, you know, and that she need, you know, maybe it's, you know, ADD or whatever. We need a workup. We you know what kind of visions do you see? And I said, she doesn't need any workup. 
you know, and Lulu, that's not a vision. That's called daydreaming. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I was right on that one. So, but anyway, the book is kind of funny for most of it. But at 13, um, my youngest daughter rebelled. So all this kind of funny, you know, the book is a little bit uh, satirical. It makes fun of myself. And a lot of people miss that. I love I love books um, with unreliable narrators. And so with, I'm sort of a character in the book. But the book gets very serious in the last third when my youngest daughter rebels like so many teenagers do. And I think this becomes a universal story, which is at a certain point I realized, oh my God, I could actually lose her. She hates me. You know, this is no longer just, uh, you know, um, and, and at that point I kind of remembered that my father had also hated his mother, you know, stuff I had suppressed. And that's why he eloped from the Philippines. They were Chinese, but lived in the Philippines to the United States. and. I had this whole crisis, and it was at that moment that I wrote this book in three months. Um, but then what happened is I thought it was going to be funny. You know, I thought it was going to be accepted as a literary contribution. I, 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 I loved Nabokov, and I thought, oh, I'm the reliable narrator. Well, it, when it came out, the Wall Street Journal excerpted the most provocative parts and then slapped on the headline, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior. And nice. this is in 2011, <laughs> at the very moment China was just rising, when right in the same month that all these international exam scores came out, with like Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, China number one with Finland, United States, you know, number 33. <laughs> um, and it exploded. Yeah, it exploded. So I, uh, a lot of people now, they're, I see terrible stuff about myself on the internet. She's so shrewd. This, this, she loves generating controversy, but I was so unprepared. You know, I had no social media. I had no website. I had no uh, Facebook or Twitter. All that was afterwards. So that's the story. I, I my, it, it took a life of its own. I, I, from that point on, I became a household name and not in a good way. Always, <laughs> uh, you know, the tiger mom, the the most uh, the most hated mother on the planet was one one headline, um, and and. and uh, you know, that was 2011. We'll, we'll talk about some of the content in a second, but you mentioned that, you know, you got a lot of blowback. And I think in your chat with Megan Kelly, uh, which I mentioned off air that I had just finished listening to a great conversation, people should go check it out. You said that, you know, oftentimes people think, you know, because you, you do appear, you know, so, so confident, so, uh, you know, so grounded, but that you were saying, and I thought that was very endearing because it's nice when we talk about our weaknesses also. It, show, it takes strength to talk about your weaknesses. You said, yeah, but if you had seen me 10 minutes earlier, I was hiding under the covers, uh, completely breaking down. So how is it that you are able to have the fortitude to always somehow find a way to project such strength, even though sometimes you may not be feeling that on the inside? Yeah, I love this question because I have a lot of friends um, who, um, I wonder if you're like this, um, but you know, um, Neil Ferguson, even my husband, just people they love they love being the bad boys. They kind of love, they, you know, thrive on it. So I sort of need to be psychoanalyzed because I get very depressed reading bad stuff about me. I, I really do. Um, and I go through a pattern that's very familiar. I, I, I first sink into this crawl into bed thing I can't deal. But then it takes about a day and then I start to get mad. I'm like, who are these people yeah. saying this? You know, and then the second day I'm like, you know, I'm not going to let them do this to me. And as to why, I actually attribute it to my parents, you know. And I think that is the real 
um, secret or why I like this, whether you call it tiger parenting or tough love or whatever, um, no sugarcoating, because it's not about um, getting straight A's and college. I mean, that stuff, I, I have very surprising views about that. I think our education system is so broke right now. Everybody's so miserable, you know. Um, but I think that the, uh, the, when this kind of tough love parenting works well, um, and that's not always easy, it does instill grit and resilience. And I think my parents taught me that. Um, I remember when I went on the academic job market, I had an article, and I, I sent it around with a cover letter to 100 schools, and I kid you not, I applied to 100 schools, and I got 100 rejections. Wow. Eight of them, eight of them after full-day interviews, you know, so it's like on the merits, you know, and I was so demoralized, and I just, you know, I could barely, uh, you know, think, and I called my father, and I said, Dad, I, I'm so sorry to disappoint you. I know you always wanted me to be an academic. It was the opposite in my family. Um, I, but this was hap this happened to me, and I don't think I'm going to be being a professor. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, "Wait a minute, let me get this straight. You got a hundred rejections, and you want to give up?" He thought that was a low number. <laughs> because you know, you think about what people have been uh, through: Holocaust survivors, or he came over, you know, to the United States at the age of 25, knowing nobody. My mom couldn't even speak English, yeah. so he's like, and he just. So that is the kind of mentality that I was raised with. Um, you just pick yourself up. So I think that's the answer. The, in these controversies, um, they are. They take a heavy toll. And I, I'll be honest, I, I like, I'm so unpleasant to be around when that happens. Maybe I, you know, I come on the screen and try to be confident, but I'm, nobody in my family wants to be near me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you asked how, how I handle it. Uh, I think you first said you, you first get depressed, then you get angry. I go straight to anger. Uh, <laughs> so efficient. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't mess with the the. It's a straight path, and and that's that's actually caused me a bit of uh, well, trouble. I don't care, but uh, with say for example, administrators at university, they because they are all about style rather than substance. Yeah. So that if they see me attacking, someone's been attacking me for four days relentlessly on Twitter, then I take them on and I call them a schmuck or an imbecile. Suddenly the university goes wild because why does someone like such a prestigious professor, professor such as yourself, you know, uh, use such words? And then I, I remember I spoke to a senior administrator. I said, so, so all the good stuff that I do that brings great, you know, benefits to the university are washed away by my using the word schmuck or imbecile. And she responded, yes. So, I mean, right. I mean, really, like, do we have to sanitize this? I mean, when you enter Twitter, it's an MMA fight, right? So if I'm giving a talk at the Stanford Business School, I can be as austere and professorial as you, you, you could imagine anybody being. But when I am mixing it up in the, you know, the big yeah. style of Twitter, using the words imbecile and schmuck are not exactly out of bounds, but yet in the rarefied, ster sterile okay. world of academia, that's beyond the pale. That's amazing. I, I think there could be some professional envy of you, too. I've noticed this with other people. You know, you have a, I think a lot of academics have very mixed views. On the one hand, they, 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 you know, we should be, we should be dignified. We shouldn't be doing this kind of, you know, public punditry. Uh, but then you wonder if they were able to do it. <laughs> Bingo. So I'll tell you a quick story about that. That's in my, in the parasitic mind. 
uh, when I, I was so I was invited to Stanford Business School, which you can argue is sort of the one of the, the meccas of academia. And I was speaking on one of my scientific papers uh, that I published in 2017. The gentleman who was handling my visit, a, a fellow academic who became the editor of a major journal uh, in our field, takes me out at night for dinner the night before my talk. And as we're sitting there, he says to me, oh, you know, I, I was checking your bio. And I, I didn't know that you were such a celebrity and you've appeared on Joe Rogan and this and that. I said, yeah, you know, I try to ha you know, build a bridge with the, with the public. I think that's an exciting thing to do. And so with an incredible air of smugness and haughtiness, he says, yeah, well, you know, at Stanford, we don't condone that. I said, you don't condone what exactly? He goes, you know, we, we don't do research so that it's sexy enough to appear on Joe Rogan. I said, but, exactly. I said, I'm, why is it either or? I'm not saying you either do top research or you appear on Joe Rogan. How about doing top research and appearing on Joe Rogan? He goes, yeah, well, we don't care about that. And so, and the explanation that I use is exactly the one that you just said, which is it's a form of ego defensiveness, right? I can't do what you do. I can't appear in front of Joe Rogan and be entertaining for three hours so that 20 million people are going to download it. Therefore, I will denigrate that which I can't do. Exactly. And if you think about the logic, it's so stupid, right? Another way to frame it is, do you want your work, which you spend so much time on, to be relevant, to have an impact? <laughs> or do you want no one to read it? Do exactly. you want Oh, after all that work, would you think only 100 people should read it? Or, or if you could have an impact, would you, do you think that would be better? I mean, that's another way of asking the question. Exactly. So um, I, and I would answer the same thing. I was like, you know, in World on, I write about foreign policy. I would get similar things. And I said, it's sort of strange to be writing about what I consider very important issues. Like how do we, what do we do about helping other countries democratize? It's a very globally important issue. And then to take the weird position that we don't want too many people to hear about this, you know, it should be a very rarefied circle. It's nonsensical. So I call that uh, in the book, I call it the garage band effect. And so I, <laughs> I analogize it in the following way. If you're only playing in front of your girlfriend and mother as, a, as literally a garage band in your garage, well, then you are a struggling artist, and so you are pure. But if you then get a number one hit and you play at Wembley Stadium, well, you're I a sellout. Well, what do you I mean I'm a sellout? Aren't I making music so I could be the Rolling Stones? I don't want just my girlfriend to hear me playing. But I that's love the... it. And how many people in the garage band would give up that opportunity <laughs> if they could have a sellout? You're exactly right. Uh, so let me just mention something uh, uh, of substance in the book, uh, in, in, in the Tiger Mom book. So are you familiar with the author? I think she has since passed away, Judith Harris. No. Do you know who that is? So she's a psychologist who wrote a book, I think I'm going to say late 90s maybe, uh, called The Nurture Assumption, which in a sense goes, you know, very much against the thesis in your book in a general way. So in, in your book, irrespective of which parenting style you're arguing is, is the optimal one, in your case, you're, 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 you know, you're defending tiger parenting, uh, you're saying that parental influence wields a lot of, you know, uh, the, the trajectory of your subsequent child. The position that she takes, hence the book title, The Nurture Assumption, yeah. is that we actually, we meaning as parents, we don't have nearly as much influence on the trajectory of our children as we otherwise would have thought. So I guess you don't know about her, but do you have any thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, I actually don't necessarily disagree as much as you might think. I mean, okay. when I um, 
think back now, I realize that my first daughter was so self-motivated and kind of, uh, you know, a natural student that if I had done absolutely nothing with her, I think she might have still come out the same way. Now, with my second daughter, I do think I made a difference um, uh, because I, I think a lot of children who have a very high achieving older sibling, I've noticed this as a psychologist, maybe there are terms and their studies, but I've just anecdotally noted so many examples where you have one very high achieving rule abiding oldest sibling. Sometimes the, the order's reverse, but usually it's the oldest. And then the second one comes along and it makes psychological sense. Like, I don't want to compete with that, you know, and, and they're very, very different. So I like to think that I made differences at the margin with my second child. I would say that she's the one that in a way, despite all the rebellion, is the bigger fan now because she knows she has a lot of opportunities. But having said that, I will, I think about this. I'm like, wow, their personalities are really what dominated, you yeah. know, like I wanted them to do violin, her little one to do violin and math. And she was always social and very high EQ and you know, fast forward 20 years, she's who she is, yeah. you know? So so maybe if I had done nothing, maybe she wouldn't have gone to a fancy school, maybe not the grades that she did get, but maybe she would have ended up the same way, right. you know, right. taking a different path. So I'm actually agnostic on that. I'm, you know, I wrote that book. My other books I write, not, I mean, kind of as an expert. That is, I put in the research and I did it. This Tiger Mom book is a memoir. So I would often go on panels with psychologists and I would say, wait, I don't belong here. I only told my story. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know about the science. I have but, one data point. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a theory, a psychological theory that speaks exactly to what you said when you were juxtaposing uh, your el older daughter to your younger one. So Frank Sullaway is a... Do you know who that is? I, I do know. I do know his work, I think. But tell me. Yeah. So more. Frank Soloway uh, wrote an unbelievable book in 1996 called Born to Rebel, where he was looking at birth order effects. And so so just give me grant me a few minutes because it takes it takes a bit oh, of time. I love, to it. Set I love up. birth order. I love birth order. OK, so get ready. Uh, so usually the way that birth order is studied in the psychological literature it's sorry, my eyes are hurting, so I'm going to put my glasses because otherwise I'm squinting. Uh, so in the in the birth order literature, you usually look at birth order effects as being driven by the parents. So parents will respond differently to children of different birth orders, and that's what drives the birth order effect. Frank Soloway came along and completely flipped the causality. He said, no, no, no. What really drives birth order effects is the children. And so here's the theory that he proposed, which is going to speak to exactly what you said at the start of this segment. So he argued, this is a, uh, an evolutionary theory. Yeah. He argued that the fundamental uh, evolutionary problem that a child faces when they're born, I mean, other than getting nutrition and, and, so, and shelter and so on, is to be maximally differentiated from all the other siblings in the wow. nest, if you'd like, so that they can garner maximal parental investment and attention. And so Amazing. he, yeah, so he called this the Darwinian niche partitioning hypothesis. I, I discussed this in, in uh, I think my, it was my first book, the 2007 book, because I then link it in consumer behavior. And so what he argued is, uh, you could imagine that the world is made up of many different niches. So when you're first born, all of the niches are unoccupied. So what I yes. mean, what do I mean by a niche? 
I'm going to be the good boy niche. Uh, I'm going to be the rebel niche. Yeah. I'm going to be the asshole niche, Wh whatever. They're yeah. all unoccupied. And so I could choose whichever one I want. I've got the whole world is, is my oyster, right? The second child is born while well, there is one fewer niches that are yeah. unoccupied. And as you go down the sip ship, there are fewer and fewer niches available. So it's really, I mean, as a, as, as a professor of consumer behavior, it's a, it's a targeting and segmentation problem Absolutely. at the most fundamental level. So your, your daughter effectively did that, right? Yeah. Niche one, good girl uh, taken. Yeah. is taken. What, yeah. how am I going to differentiate myself? Boom, here comes the rebel. I love you explain things so well. That's I'm excited to read your books. Thank um, you. And that, and I'll have that, to send you those books too because now I'm under yeah, pressure. I'll get them off Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. That that's that, that does explain it. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Let's move on to the next one. This is oh you and you wrote a very sweet uh, note in one of them referring to the triple package. So the triple package, what really determines success. Get it, people. Talk to me about that one, Amy. So that was an attempt after the Tiger Mom to actually bring some academic rigor to these very questions we were just talking about, which is like, why are what motivates children? You know, what motivates people? Um, so I'll I'll just very very quickly uh, as a teaser say um, we looked at the most successful groups in the United States at a certain point. And these, these groups change, so it's not genetic. Like, you know, Greek Americans were very successful, you know, 50 years ago. Um, but at this point in time, I think it was 2013, we looked at the most successful groups in America by very conventional metrics, per capita income, education, success, and, you know, all this kind of, um, not about happiness, but just conventional metrics. And we found a very interesting set, you know, um, I mean, Indian Americans, uh, you know, Chinese Americans, uh, uh, Iranian-Americans, um, I think even, I don't know, the Lebanese, Cuban-Americans, Nigerian-Americans, Jews and Mormons, we, we, we identified. And so I was looking for what connects these groups, and I won't get into the methodology or, you know, because it's, um, it's not as rigorous as the way you approach things, but we basically found that all these groups share three traits. The first is what we call a superiority complex, <laughs> uh, you know, a sense of being exceptional the chosen people or in the Chinese case, I was always raised, we come from the greatest civilization in humanity, you know. Um, um, so a superiority complex is one. But interestingly, that has to be combined with a second trait, which is insecurity. And that is the interesting thing, this combination of feeling very like you're, you're, you come from, you're exceptional in some ways, but then insecurity whether because you're an outsider as an immigrant or persecuted as jews or or for whatever reason that combination and there are lots of studies that show this creates uh, or I, I mean that, that contribute to this uh creates almost a chip on the shoulder effect right. which is i'm gonna have to show everybody um and then the final one is i think we call it impulse control just self-discipline right. and we look at all the groups and they have this um and it can uh, it can apply to individual people too and I'm just guessing that you're a triple package person and you don't have to belong to one of these groups to have it. Um, yeah. I, 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 I talked to, a, um, you know, a Supreme Court justice um, who uh, was from a very uh, poor background uh, and said, you know, it was her grandmother that gave her the sense of exceptionalism. You can do anything. The insecurity just being just being a minority that was from right. this very, you know, a poor background 
And then again, it was this parenting. So this is tied to the tiger parenting, this, the third trait, impulse control. Like every day you have to get up and um, uh, you, have to be, you have to read this much every day or some, some ability of self-discipline. So that's the thesis of the book. And I don't know why it was so controversial. I think this says something about how crazy the dialogue is out there. I mean, I thought it would be should be not controversial because we we said, see, it sh we show that it's not about race because if you look at these successful groups right now, it includes you know Hispanic American group like Cuban Americans and Nigerian Americans and Ghanan Ghanaian Americans. So obviously, it's not about race. So that should be good news. Um, and you know, it's a lot of people say, and this is a very good point. Oh no, it's all just whoever was already rich, you know, and this is partly true. Many of the South Asians that came over did come with a lot of both financial and human capital. But our studies found, some from Toronto, that even very, uh, you know, like Chinese American students, the children of Chinese immigrants who were laundry workers, restaurant workers, where the parents were almost illiterate, no money, those children still demonstrated astonishing upward mobility and had this kind of motivation. Right. So, so I thought this was very interesting, but then of course we were accused of cultural racism. That's a new term, cultural <laughs> racism. Um, so we, had, we battled that for a while, but yeah, that's that. Well, so it's, I think the, the fact that you got a lot of blowback for that book stems from part of the, the stuff that's called forbidden knowledge in academia. So, so things like sex differences are a huge taboo. Well, they're a taboo if you find that men are superior on some task. If you find that women are superior, then you're a great scientist. But if you find, if you find that men are superior, then obviously you're indistinguishable from Himmler. Uh, and the same thing will then apply to groups of people, right? If, if in your, I mean, what, irrespective of what you attribute the causality to, whether it be genes or culture or socialization, to the extent that you're even stating that there are some groups who on some metric have performed better than others, you're already Himmler. You should never Amazing. be saying that. Isn't that unbelievable? It's unbelievable because I would get emails from, I remember getting a, an email from um, a poor Mexican-American school teacher. And he said, I love this book. It was It's often very privileged kind of, people criticizing me, you know, but he said, I love this book. It made me feel so much better because my kids, I would see, you know, I have a little boy and I would say, why are all these Asian kids doing so well? And he said, I love kind of uncovering this and knowing that anyone can do this. You know, I want to learn like, what are you guys doing? And it's not, it's not, you know, he said, it, it's not genetic. It's not in the rice. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, um, so the idea that it should be, anyway, you, you gave a good explanation. For, so I'll give that's you befuddled. Two, two, two quick personal anecdotes. So the first one, uh, to, to kind of juxtapose against the guy who, who said, are you going to always be an academic, sort of denigrating uh, uh, being a professor. So let me compare that to my mother, who actually thought very highly of education. Uh, and, and both my parents are also uh, still alive. So uh, after I finished my MBA, so I had done an undergrad. Uh, uh, the reason I'm mentioning what, what my studies were because it's relevant to the story. Yeah. Uh, so I had done an undergrad in mathematics and computer science, pure mathematics. I mean, in terms of the hierarchy of serious fields, and that's really at the top of the hierarchy, oh God, pure mathematics, right? So we, we, dream. we used yeah. to look down, like we, we, we used to sometimes take one or two courses with the engineers and sort of this, the, the story was we would make fun of them because of course only those who are too dumb to go into mathematics would do something as practical as engineering. The Absolutely. real, the real smart. So, so this is the kind of background I came from. So, 
Uh, my undergrad was in mathematics and computer science. Then I did an MBA. And then I was going straight. I was going to go on for my PhD because I always knew that I wanted to be a professor. Now, one of my brothers who lives in Southern California at the time was trying to convince me to take a break after my MBA, put on the proverbial suit, get a couple of years of experience before, yes, going on to do my PhD. And he was trying to convince me of this. So I had gone down to California first to visit UC Irvine, where I had also been accepted for my PhD, and to then hang out with him at his company. When I returned to Montreal, my mother had caught wind of the desire of my brother to try to convince me to to, you know, to take a break after my MBA, she takes me to a side room. She says, I, I want to talk to you. It was very sort of ominous. I said, well, what's up, mom? She goes, well, I heard what's, what you're talking about with David, my brother. And uh, if you decide to leave after the MBA, do you want everybody in the community to know that you're someone who dropped out of school? So having an MBA would bring shame to the family as a school dropout. Right, so you can relate based from the tiger mom perspective. You get it, right? Amazing. I totally relate. I I come from a science family too, so I completely relate. Amazing. (laughs) So, and the second story, uh, and and this story that I'm going to say, if that professor were to say that today, and if I were one of the blue-haired snowflake people, I would have, you know, filed a discrimination. A complaint against him but it was a lovely thing that he had said but it shows you how much we've come from the late 1980s when i got my mba i got my mba in 1990 so that my in my second year of the mba i took a managerial negotiations course with this great professor and each class we would actually the, the class would do an actual negotiation where there was an you know, someone who officially won today's negotiations exercise. So the first week we do it, it's maybe a class of about 40 students, 40, 50 MBA students. So the first week, I win the negotiations. The second week, I win the negotiations. So he comes to me at the end of the second class and he says, uh, I'm sorry, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, sure, professor, what is it? He goes, what, what's, what's your background? I said, you mean my, my educational background? What? He goes, no, 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 what, where, where are you from? What? That already, already would have gotten him fired today, you right? Can't you can't ask that. So I said, oh, uh, I'm Lebanese Jew. He said, whoa, 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 you're Lebanese and Jewish? What the hell are you doing in my course? What can I teach you about negotiations? That's so funny. <laughs> that would be so many actionable claims, that conversation, right? <laughs> Now you're stereotyping, you're, you're never, it's, yeah. It's, it's oh unbelievable. Great story. We'll come back to some of that political correctness towards the end of our chat. Uh, anything else about Tiger Mom or do we go to the last book? We can before? go, oh no, we're on triple package, so that we can go on, yeah. Okay, and then Political Tribes, which again is fantastic book. I, I, I haven't read it yet, but I certainly know the thesis. It's important to me, this book, because I'm someone who's also written about coalitional psychology, innate yeah. coalitional psychology. So that's very much what the central thesis of this book is, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Canada is a little bit different, but, you know, a lot of people are looking at the United States and saying, well, what's happening, you know, uh, with Donald Trump and all white nationalists and Black Lives Matter. And and I try to be above the fray because some people are, has it always been like this, you know, um, and I just I say that this particular moment in the United States is different for two reasons. The first is that for the first time in U.S. history, whites are about to lose their majority status. Um, uh, and this is uh, all the psychological stuff, you know. Uh, but, but to make a long story short, you can see that now it's, it used to just be the minorities who were threatened, African-Americans, Asian-Americans. Now whites feel threatened 
Jews, but Christians feel threatened, you know? So that's kind of something that I talk about. Factor one, this massive demographic change. Factor two ties us back to my first book. So I, uh, you know, for 20 years said, the, the reason the United States keeps messing up its foreign policy is that we assume everybody's like the United States, you know, um, but in fact, so many foreign countries have this market dominant minority, you know, like um, a small number of Syrian or sorry, Lebanese who are very dominant in West Africa, you know, and, and all this phenomenon. Uh, and you get dynamics that are not like we have here because we do not have this problem of a market dominant minority because basically our dynamic in the United States is a very politically and economically dominant white majority, you know. And but then I say for the first time in U.S. history, I think we might be seeing the emergence of our own very idiosyncratic version of a market dominant minority. It's not ethnic. It's not religious. So who is this new minority? I describe them as our cosmopolitan elites uh, or coastal elites, you know. Um, and of course, it's just an analogy. It's not perfect. You could argue that I'm diluting my world on fire thesis. But a lot of the dynamics are very parallel. You see a lot of people in the heartland, in the middle of the country, you know, President Trump's, uh, former President Trump's base. They see these elites that seem to be, I mean, it is the fact that um, a small number of people living on their coasts and the major cities like Chicago and Atlanta control a huge amount of the United States from Wall Street to Silicon Valley to Washington, D.C., to all of the Ivy League, to Hollywood, you know, um, so the idea and this dynamic of, oh, there's this tiny minority controlling everything and they don't care about real Americans. You know, they like Bill Gates, he cares more about the poor in Africa. Um, so if you look at a lot of the rhetoric that's happening in the United States, you know, make America great again. Let's take it back from the Mexicans and the Chinese. It's very parallel to a lot of the dynamics that I studied in developing countries like Zimbabwe, where, you know, the whites were a little market dominant minority or Indonesia. Um, and again, it's just an analogy, but I it's, it's so that's kind of my explanation for why we're seeing some of the kinds of dynamics and movements in the United States that seem very different from, you know, what's been going on for, for the rest of our history. So, I mean, as I was uh, trying to think for of a question for that book, uh, he, I was kind of torn because on the one hand, I, as an evolutionary psychologist, I, I know that it's very hard for our for the architecture of the human mind to extricate itself from the desire to think coalitionally. That, so in other words, it is a natural thing for us to assort ourselves along tribes. But then I think the optimistic message that I can take away from that penchant is that what matters is which marker we use to yes. delineate ourselves, right? So for example, if I were to say, no matter what happens, I'm always going to side with the Jews. From my perspective, as a kind of universal humanist, that would be in violation of my calculus because I could have a lot more in common with a secular liberal Muslim than the orthodox uh, Hasidic Jew, even though he, he shares his Judaism with me, I don't share many of the otherwise important values to me, right? So is this a way by which we can try to navigate both the fact that we are ultimately tribal beings. Yeah. We do see the world as us versus them. But how do you define the us versus them is really yeah. the... If, I mean, this. I think you can teach me more about this. I, I, um, I introduced this concept um, 
uh, just referring to the United States, um, of a super group. Okay, I have all these terms. But this super group is very, princ uh, because you know, we can all have obviously more than one identity at the same time, right? Um, and so what I see about the United States is one of the kind of magic things that we've had, you know, obviously a very imperfect country, but kind of something distinctive is that so to be a super group, you have to have a very strong overarching national identity. Exactly. Okay. Uh, you know, like you're not American or, or China, Chinese or French. But then to be a super group, you need to satisfy a second condition. And it's that you have to be a society that allows all these smaller sub-identities, sub-group identities to flourish. So China is not a supergroup under this definition because it satisfies one. Yeah. There's a very strong nationalistic identity. But obviously with the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, um, you know, the subgroup identities are not able to flourish. In the United States, at our best, and I do not think we're at our best right now, right. Um, we were a country where, you know, you could be Italian-American, Jewish-American, Korean-American, Ghanaian-American, and still be very patriotic at the same yeah. time. So um, I think that something that I've, you know, I've been getting a lot of, in trouble for is that I think that this overarching collective identity is under a lot of threat right now in the United yeah. States. Um, partly because the, partly because you know, a lot of progressives are accurately saying that look, a lot our, our founding fathers were they, they they held slaves, they 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 were you know white supremacists and. They're saying, and, but I think that's very dangerous for the United States if we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's one thing to say, look, a lot of our founding fathers were very imperfect. You know, we have the Constitution, but we still allow slavery. That's one thing to just acknowledge the truth. It's another thing to say, oh, this Constitution is trash. Right. It's just a white supremacist document. Um, then, what is the glue that will be left um, holding this country together? I mean, Canada's history is a little bit different. Yeah. But for us, we were always, that's our foundational document, um, and a lot of fancy school, I've given talks and they come talk to me secretly, the headmasters, they're, as a white male, I, I, I don't know what to do, all my, my young students, 17, 18, they're so smart, but they all say the founding fathers are just, you know, they're just racist, white supremacists, we don't need to, you know, uh, in the Constitution, it's a, a, it's a document, it's a racist document. And I can't say anything because I'll be canceled. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that speaks to in, in, in the earlier book where you talked about the three conditions of the, the triple package, the first one being the superiority complex. Uh, even if I remove, because th there's kind of a pejorative sense yeah. to superiority, right? Yeah. If I just yeah. say, how about, how about just pride in your yes, pride. history, right? Uh, look, if, if you at the individual level were to go see a therapist and you're suffering from uh, deep self-loathing, that would be something that the therapist would try to, uh, you know, resolve with you. Yes. But somehow the progressive calculus today is that if you are self-loathing about your culture, that's laudable, right? I am bad. I'm self-flagellating. I am white. I am Westerner. Well, how could a society, I mean, and you said that you need to have that sense of pride, superiority to truly flourish. How could then the U.S. continue on its path of flourishing, which I'm not sure it is, if it's going to define itself based on how much it engages in self-loathing? It's such a brilliant point. I can't stand it. Um, and so 100% brilliant insight there. But what you see is I, and I wonder if you can say something more about this. I think there's also among a lot of people a human desire to want to be proud of yourself. So what you see is I think this this kind of thinking 
leads to these underground movements that people are sick of hearing this yeah. and it leads to the dangerous extreme in the other direction exactly. these more white supremacist things exactly. you know so it's a, it's a terrible it's, it's a terrible in both directions see it's um, funny it's funny you say this because uh Oftentimes, I will get some insane white supremacists who will send me death threats. Jew, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna boil you last, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> On the other hand, those same guys who hate me, when they see me attacking critical race theory and making fun of all the whiteness and white fragility, suddenly I become their ally because. But but that's because that speaks to the point I made about how you de 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 design your tribes, right? Because I am defending deontological principles. You're yeah. not allowed to attack someone based on their skin you, whereas they are uh, either, uh, you know, aligning with you I or know. not. Right? I, I, somebody, I, I just had some reporters ask me, you know, why do you think you're so controversial? And I said something very similar. I said, I think because I don't belong to a tribe. You know, it's so much more comfortable if I'm, because I'm an independent. I have some views very much, I guess you would characterize as on the left, some on the right. Exactly. I mean, that's, I'm an independent, you know, and proud of it. And, but it is painful sometimes because you don't really have a team, you know, yeah. like, um, but I refuse. If I don't want to toe the line, if I don't believe something, I'm not going to say something. Um, and it is, uh, oh, now I've, I lost my train of thought, but I, I think that I'm, you're describing it in a more sophisticated way. But I also just, I, I, and somebody said to me, the reporter said, I saw that you retweeted, you know, F. So, yeah, right. Yeah, and I said, yeah. And she said, why did you do that? Was a signal. I said, because I agreed with the person on this point. I'm, I'm precisely resisting that I could, I'm too scared to retweet somebody, even if I love it, because that would be, you know, my, a tribe would be mad at me. So the world is really crazy right but, now. You can't even be yourself do you think and it it links back to the question when i asked you about the nurture versus nature you know the uh, tiger parenting and so on do you think that this honey badgerism that you certainly have that megan kelly has that if i may say i certainly have do you think this is something that can be in part taught or it really is you either are a leopard that has those spots or you don't and there's no way you're going to alter either people's great courage or cowardice it's such a great question, you know, because um, going back to this kind of role modeling, my dad is fearless. Yeah. My dad is fearless. And I've often, I, I am not saying, speaking as a, a empirical, um, you know, expert here, but I often notice how um, similar in some ways uh, children are to one of their parents or something like that, or, or, you, or they also are sometimes completely different, yeah. you know, I mean, you could also, so, so I have no uh, basis here. But in my case, um, I think my hero was always my dad, who was just always willing to stand up to anything. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna not give an optimistic answer because the optimistic answer would be, "Hey, everybody, sign up for my seminar 101 on how to be a honey badger, and let me charge you each a thousand dollars because you too can be a honey badger." That would be the smart mercantile way to do it. But I actually think that this is something that's very much innate, right? There, there, there is no uh, environmental context that I can think of that led to me being who I am. I am who I am. I am indignant when I see bullshit. I am indignant when I see hypocrisy. It's as if, uh, the analogy I always like to draw is if, if you hear a woman being accosted aggressively in an alley screaming for help and you pass by, there are two types of people, those who pretend they didn't hear it and scurry along and those who say, oh, I've got to intervene. Well, I've got to intervene and there's nothing that happened in my environment that caused 
me to do that. It's just who I am. So yeah, I, 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 I don't know because it's your field, but I, I do know that I've had a, some nice compliments from some Asian American students because I've been resisting all kinds of campaigns against me in a way that is very counter to the Asian stereotype. You know, tweeting something outrageous, writing a letter to the whole faculty, something I don't even associate with myself, but I did it because I felt I had to stand up for myself. And I have had compliments like, oh, you know, I watching somebody who looks like me do this is very inspiring. And But I, I maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe it, it's not that then people will transform. Um, very interesting question. Very interesting <laughs> question. I'm very different from my siblings. I mean, you're right. It does seem... I don't know what it is. It, it's just, it is what it is, right? Okay, last question, because otherwise I could probably keep you here for yeah. another five hours. This is so much fun. Uh, let's talk briefly. I mean, so it, it, it isn't how many subparts you want it to be. The whole cancel culture, political correctness. Yale, of course, had the classic uh, uh, Halloween costume story, right which I just, right? Uh What's your position on this? Do you think we're still we still haven't reached uh, blue-haired people, uh, you know, singularity point? Uh, are we starting to fight back? Where are we in this whole thing? What do you think of all this? Well, you're asking me at a strange time because I'm in the middle of a, a, a big uh, campaign against me, um, and I'm fighting back. It's the first time I've ever done this, and even with the Tiger Mom thing, I I didn't have it at my school, you know. So I think things have changed so much in the last ten years. Um, uh, and it's very different. You know, we, I, I mentioned this on the Megan Kelly show. I, for 20 years, you know, I had students who were very conservative, be friends with people, very progressive. And just, it was part of what was so fun. We would have a beer and everybody would argue and, you know, everybody would, there would be intellectual flourishing. Now, you know, there's this concept that if you belong to the federal society, that's the conservative group. Yeah. Um, and that is now viewed as so toxic and racist that if you even have a friend, you don't belong to him. You just have a friend. You are marked as fed sock adjacent. So that's it. And you and you, you you lose friends. You um. So I am not. I I am not an optimist in the sense that I think that we've turned any corner yet. But I'm an optimist in that my sense of the empirics is that it's a there's a vast silent majority of yes. people that are yes. so sick of this. Um. And the best example for this is the size of my classes, because I was asked to apologize for this and that, and I said, I refuse to do it, because I, I won't, you know. So then the administration said to me, this is two years ago, they said, well, then you may have only two students apply to your class. And I said, great, it'll be fewer papers to grade. I'll teach two students. That semester, most controversial, 80 students apply. Oh, wow. You know? uh, and then this class, I'm in the middle of a huge controversy. You read me about me on the internet. It's awful. I'm operating a nefarious ring out of my house. I'm complicit with everything. And then, but my class right now is 90 people because I capped it with a wait list of an additional 80. Wow. And remember, each incoming class is only 190 students. So, so I am optimistic, not that there's any leadership yet. I don't see any of that. Um, but I think that that quietly the numbers to me look like there's actually far more reasonable people who understandably they don't want to speak out because they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to be they, they don't want to be shamed. They, they just like put their heads down. Um, I do not know how we go from A to B, right. you know, because at, at any individual point, it's not worth it for that person. Um, uh, so so but I the loud extremes. You know, but, carry the floor. But to to build on your 
I guess, sense of optimism that we might be, you know, with the silent majority turning the tide. Uh, on Monday, um, my next guest will be a gentleman. I don't know if you know him. His name is Christopher Rufo. You know? I follow his stuff. I know oh. very, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm excited to watch. Right. So, so Christopher Rufo, for, for you guys who are listening or watching today, is someone who's become the nemesis of the critical race theory, you know, shenanigans. And what, partly because of his work, partly because of other people who are outspoken, a lot of parents are now in the in the in the education board meetings and so on are speaking out. I mean a lot I mean it's still not enough, but a lot more than six months ago. So I do get the sense that people are starting to slowly activate their inner honey badgers. And if people like you in a major place like Yale keep uh, showing us the way of how to be courageous, I think we'll be on the right track before you know it. Well I mean, yeah this was so much fun. Um, it was amazing. And, uh, yeah, and um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can all be optimists. <laughs> Very good. Th thank you so much, Amy. Stay on the line so we can say our official goodbyes offline. Okay. Thank you all for uh, tuning in. There you go.